Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 210 with Tina Selig. Tina has all kinds of wisdom when it comes to generating more creative ideas and solutions. It's a whole lot of fun. You'll learn one, the two requirements for imagination, two, how to generate many new solutions via framing and reframing, and three, the argument for brainstorming. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items referenced here, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep210. Now here's Tina's story. Tina Selig is a professor of the practice in Stanford University's Department of Management, Science, and Engineering and is a faculty director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. She teaches courses in the Hazo Plattner Institute of Design, also known as the D School, and leads three fellowship programs in the School of Engineering that are focused on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Dr. Selig earned her PhD in neuroscience at Stanford Medical School and has been a management consultant, entrepreneur, and author of 17 books, including Insight Out, Ingenious, and What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. She's the recipient of the Gordon Prize from the National Academy of Engineering, the Olympus Innovation Award, and the Silicon Valley Visionary Award. So thanks to Tina for taking some time to be with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them. So you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello dot com. Here's Tina. Tina, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so we're going to be talking about an upcoming book of yours and you've done writing of books, both for children and for grownups and your children's books outnumber the grownups books. What's the story behind kids books? (laughs) Well, it's actually a little bit misleading because I do have 13 kids books, but 12 of them are part of a series. It's a a series of games called Games for Your Brain. And they're published by Chronicle Books and they're so fun. And I started writing them when my kid was seven and I realized that, boy, um, he loved playing card games and manipulatives. And I I thought, wouldn't it be great if there were games where he actually learned something a little bit more meaningful than the name of Pokemon characters? Mm -hmm. So uh, I I designed, I just literally mocked them up initially on index cards. And he and his friends loved playing with them. So I then hired someone, I mocked them up in a much higher resolution. And that worked really well. And then I contacted uh, publishers and Chronicle Books picked them up. So I did them over this 
course of many years, sort of like two decks coming out every couple of years. And uh, there are a dozen decks. So type topics like space and ocean and weather and bugs and uh, the world. And uh, so finally, at the end, I was doing things like extreme sports. Mm-hmm. So uh, as my kid got older and was interested in cars and extreme sports, those became the topics I finished with. Well, I think extreme sports is an important part of the Common Core curriculum, isn't it? Absolutely, especially (laughs) extreme ironing. I I put in a few really funny sports that, you know, like extreme ironing. Have you ever heard of that? It's hysterical. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wait, I thought this was an elaborate ploy to uh, (laughs) coerce your children into doing chores, but this is an actual sport. Yeah, but it's actually, you know, maybe it is. You know, can you please iron this shirt on the top of a mountain? So it's really funny. Anyway, the the fact is I had a great fun doing all of those, and I'm very proud of that series. But that's why I have so many kids' books. Um, Another reason is that my first book I wrote was actually on the chemistry of cooking, and it was published by Scientific American. It was called The Epicurean Laboratory. And they liked it so much, they asked me to do a kid's version. And so that's my other kids book. It's a book called Incredible Edible Science, uh, which is a book about the chemistry of cooking uh, for kids. And you might wonder, like, what inspired me to do those books? Well, it turned out I was a, I'm a neuroscientist by training. And I realized when I was in grad school, I understood in great depth what was going on in my lab, but not in my kitchen. And this was long before the days where the chemistry of cooking was popular. And I couldn't find the answers to the questions I had. And so I said, well, you know, I better write a book about this. So when I was in grad school, I started outlining uh, my first book, which was on the chemistry of cooking. Oh, intriguing. And you know, that subject, it's fascinating how there is just so much going on there. I remember I self-published a book and the book manufacturer sent me sample books to see what they could do and the different materials. And one of the sample books was Bubbles in Food 2. And this was a huge book all about bubbles and food. And apparently it was the sequel. So I thought, wow, there is a lot to say about this topic. That is so fascinating. Yeah. What did you take away from that book on bubbles and food? (laughs) I I took away that it was well-constructed and that this was a a suitable manufacturer for me to work with. (laughs) You know what? That's the wonderful thing. There's a long tail. I'm sure there are a few people who that's the topic that keeps them up at night. Totally. Well, so I want to hear then you have a lot of creative output yourself and we're going to talk about uh, some of those principles from your course and then your book. But when you're personally trying to put forward and make something in the world creatively. What do you do to keep those juices flowing? Yeah, I think you really do have to keep exercising those muscles. One of the things that often comes up is that people ask me all the time, uh, can you really teach creativity? And I, I, I'm just a huge believer that, of course, you can, uh, just as you can teach math and science and sports and music. Um, but and, and then a lot of people use it as an excuse. Oh, you can't teach this. It's an excuse why they don't do it. But really, every single day, you can be doing things that stretch those muscles, that work them and strengthen them. Uh, one of the things I've been doing recently is I make collages. And you might think, well, what is that about? It started as a project. I was doing a project 
called 60 Weeks to 60. And so in the 60 weeks leading up to my 60th birthday, I kept giving myself different challenges to stretch me in different ways. And one day I have a huge stack of New Yorkers by my bed and I just took them and I pulled the covers off and cut them all up in strips and made these collages that with sort of interlocking covers from the New Yorker. And honestly, it was really cool. Yeah. And uh, I thought, that is so fun. Now, one thing that's interesting about New Yorker covers is they tend to use the same color palette um, in in interesting ways across their covers. And so when you put them together, you get these really interesting things that happen. And so I have been playing around doing all sorts of really fun things with New Yorker covers. So now lots of people send me New Yorker covers. And uh, so that's something, and, and you might think, well, why has that really caught on for me? Well, it's a way of looking at old things in new ways and connecting, combining ideas, right? So I don't have to start with a blank canvas. I start with these covers and I look at what I might want to do to connect and combine them in interesting ways. And I also then have to look at them in a new way, like look at them from the lens of color or composition or shape. And uh, as I said, really interesting things happen. Interesting indeed. Well, so then that's how you're living it right now. And can you give us the story on your course at Stanford that you have turned into a book coming up here, Creativity Rules? You know, what's the backstory and the goal of the course? Yeah. So um, I've been teaching classes on creativity and innovation for a long time. Now, it's interesting, you mentioned before we started recording that you had uh, interviewed Bob Sutton, my colleague. That's right. And uh, too funny, because it all starts there. I got to Stanford about 18 years ago, and Bob was teaching a course on creativity and innovation. And he said, you know what, I really don't want to teach this class anymore. And I said, pick me, pick me, pick me. I was a very unlikely person to pick to go teach his class, but there was a huge need for someone to teach this class. It was sort of an anchor course in our department. And my colleagues looked at me and said, like, okay, we'll give you a try. So I started teaching this class and uh, the course has evolved over the years. You know, when you start teaching a class, sort of the lowest common denominator thing you can do is start bringing in guest speakers, right? So I started that way. And then I started developing all my own uh, creativity um exercises and projects. And the course has really taken on a life of its own over this 18 years. And a few years ago, I realized that although the course is called Creativity and Innovation, I would really be hard pressed to clearly define the difference between them. And I started doing some deep thinking and realized this is more than just a a little problem. This is a huge problem because if we don't actually have clear definitions of the terms related to the creative process, uh, we're talking past each other. In fact, if you last asked all of your listeners to write in their definition of creativity, you're going to get that many different answers. I'm a scientist by training. In the world of science and engineering, that would be a total a non-starter to not have a shared vocabulary and clear definitions. And so I decided to put a stake in the ground. And I decided to put a framework together looking at the clear definitions for imagination, creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship, and to also look at how they're related. And just to finish this up, I then was able to go back and look at what actually had to happen to enhance each of these four things. 
Oh, yes. So I'm right with you. And then, so that's great whenever you break it down. So we got four key components there. So can you share with us, you know, what do you mean by imagination and creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship? And what are some ways that you can do each step optimally? Great. This is something I am now totally passionate about. Um, uh, and, and in fact, it has transformed all of my teaching. Um, so let's start at the beginning, right? So creativity is essentially envisioning things that don't exist. All right. It's, it's, you know, it's something that we all do. It's something we're born doing. It's something that is very natural, right? Um, every kid, you know, you say, oh, imagine a butterfly or imagine a horse or imagine, you know, a car zipping by, right? We all can do that. Creativity is then applying your imagination to solve a problem or address a challenge or, you know, an opportunity. So, for example, um, let's say you're hungry and you open the refrigerator. You can use your imagination or your ability to envision things that don't exist to envision a peanut butter sandwich. Right. So you're that's your sort of creative problem solving. Oh, I'm hungry. What do I have here? Oh, I can envision a peanut butter sandwich. Now, the thing that's important about creativity is the idea doesn't have to be new to the world. It doesn't even actually have to be new to you, but it might have to be new to you at this moment. Okay. Okay. Innovation then is applying the creativity to come up with a unique solution. So you're essentially. Um, the difference between creativity and innovation is that creative ideas are new to you or new to the moment, and innovative ideas are new to the world. And there are many times in which a creative solution will suffice, but there are many times in which you really need an innovative solution. You really need something that's a breakthrough. All right. Okay? And then entrepreneurship is applying the innovation to scale the idea and bring it to the world. So it's a hierarchy going from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship. And it's a cycle, just one more thing, because the end leads back to the beginning. Entrepreneurship requires of inspiring other people's imagination. Okay. Well, so maybe to cement these all the more, you know, with the four steps here, with the peanut butter imagination, could you maybe walk us through? So from the conception of peanut butter, like, ooh, I'd like that, you know, to then applying, like, what does that look like in the creativity, the innovation and the entrepreneurship phase just to cement it all the more? Okay. So let's do that example. Let's see how it works. Okay. So I, um, I can imagine, right. I can imagine a sandwich, but then I'm hungry. Now I open the refrigerator and now I use my creativity to put together the sandwich. But let's say I go, you know what? I want someone no one, no, no one has ever done before. So now I want to be innovative. I go, okay, I'm going to put anchovies on the sandwich, okay? I'm going to put cayenne pepper on the sandwich. I'm going to take peanut butter and jelly and, you know, whatever else, there's something else, mustard I'm going to put on. No one else has ever done that before, okay? Now I have an innovative sandwich. Then I take it to that. I go, you know what? This sandwich is so great. I'm going to sell this sandwich. I'm going to start a sandwich shop. I'm going to basically create franchises of this sandwich all over the world. That's when I become go become entrepreneurial. But of course, unless I inspire other people to join my team, to help me make sandwiches, to help market sandwiches, to help raise money for sandwiches, you know, to send out tweets around the world about the, these cool sandwiches, um, I'm not going to be successful. So I have to inspire other people's imagination and then their creativity, their innovation and their entrepreneurial spirit. And so the reason this is so powerful is that this engine, I call this the 
and innovation, um, actually the invention cycle, this cycle is so powerful, is that it leads to wave upon wave upon wave of more imagination and creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship. Okay. Exciting indeed. Yes. So, and it's transformative, you know, over the years and decades and centuries in terms of exactly. things getting invented. That's cool. Well, you know, you think about it. I, I just want to point out something. So here I am at Stanford University. I mean, I certainly didn't found this university. Okay. It's been around for 125 years. So, um, Someone had to inspire me to come here, right? And then once I'm here, right, I'm not in the center of this of this cycle. I'm I'm way out in, in these waves. But someone had to inspire me to come here. But then I'm in a position where I can now inspire my students, and they can inspire other people. And and this is how we all can become incredible change agents in the world by harnessing this. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, so now I'm wondering then with each of these steps. Do you have some perspectives on how we can do them all the better? Like you can imagine at a ho-hum level or you can imagine like a champion. Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's what I spend my time doing, right? The framework is just there to sort of set the stage. Now you go deep into what do you actually have to do to unlock this um, for each person and each team and each organization. So here's the thing. I started out with a long laundry list of what you had to do for each one. And I thought that's way too much. So I squeezed it and squeezed it and squeezed it until I came down to one representative action and one representative attitude for each one. All right. Now, why do you think I needed an action and an attitude? Like why did attitude even matter? Well, my hunch is that when you're in the right kind of mental state or zone or attitude, you know, things just sort of flow all the more easily. Yeah. In fact, you're absolutely right. And if you don't have the right mindset for each of these, you're not going to do it. This is actually hard work. This, you know, it might seem you can spell these words, you know, it sounds easy, but this is actually really hard and it gets harder the the further you go through the cycle, right? Um, Creativity is harder than imagination. Innovation is harder than creativity and entrepreneurship is harder than innovation. So you, the, the attitudes get much more challenging just as the action. So let's start at the beginning. Imagination requires two things, engaging in the world and envisioning what might be different. Now, there's a surprising piece to this because most people think of it the other way around. Most people think that you envision what you want to do and then you engage in making it happen. But actually, it's the other way around. Everything starts with engagement. Engagement is the master key that opens the door. And so you can't, this is why a lot of people sit around going, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do? I don't know. Well, it doesn't matter. Start somewhere. Try something. Experiment. You go out, let's say all you care about is, I don't know, what, what's your hobby? What do you like? What do you do? Oh, you just moved into a new house. <laughs> I did, yeah. Maybe, okay. So maybe, maybe you're interested to get excited about decorating. Maybe you go, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, I just moved in this house and like, there aren't enough tools. Like, wow, this is a real problem. Figuring out how things are going to fit in my new house. And, you know, here I'm getting all this furniture. It shows up and I don't know if it, if it's going to fit or clash. And wow, this is a real problem. Well, you might decide that that's something you, you know what? I'm going to decide to solve this problem. 
Now, maybe you don't. Maybe you go, that's interesting, and go on to the next problem, because guess what? Our life is full of problems. Every single day, if you made a bug list of everything that you experienced that's sort of frustrating, there are always some interesting things in there that you could go into further, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so so let's say you, you got excited about, you know what, gosh, you would never have known that decorating was an interesting challenge until you moved in this house and had to do it. So, so, or you travel somewhere and you see some group of people you've never met before and they have a problem and you go, wow, um, I could help them. Or you open a restaurant and you realize that, wow, people keep asking for gluten-free food. That seems to be an interesting problem. Maybe I should open a gluten-free restaurant. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you engage with the world and then you see the problems and then you envision what might be different. So that's imagination creativity takes to the next stage. This is where you are motivated to solve a problem and you start doing experiments. And here's the trick here. The trick is you just need a little bit of motivation. A little bit of motivation leads to a little experiment. Okay. And then the results of that experiment leads to more motivation, right? And then you then do a bigger experiment. And this is a problem other people have all the time. They don't know where to start. The point is, it doesn't matter. Start with a little experiment. So let's say, I don't know, it's going to make this up on the spot. You're decorating. You're thinking, I think people could be use help with decorating and I've got some new tool. You know what? Put an ad on, on Google, put a Facebook ad, put up a flyer somewhere. See if people call you and ask for the service, whatever it is you're going to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And let's say no one calls. It's like, okay, fine. I put up a flyer. No one called. I guess I won't invest in that. But maybe your phone is ringing off the hook and you go, well, that's interesting. Yes. There's clearly demand for this. Absolutely. You know, this reminds me of with this podcast, I did some validation along those lines in terms of putting a survey out. It's so cool. The tools you can have from Google consumer surveys to SurveyMonkey, custom mm-hmm. audiences to voicepolls.com. You can, in a hurry, get a whole bunch of people to tell you what they think. Absolutely. Isn't that great? Yeah. So there's a concept that I discuss in my book and in my classes that I think is very powerful. It's the concept of predotyping. Now, I didn't make this up. This is my colleague, Alberta Savoya, coined this term. And it's about these tiny little experiments, these predotypes. Before you do a prototype, you do a predotype. So the, the classic example here is let's imagine you have a restaurant and you want to try a, a new item on your menu. Well, instead of even developing it, you could literally put it on the menu and not even make it. Right. And just see if people order it. And you can say, oh, I'm really sorry we're out of stock today. Yeah. But you'll get a sense of like, actually, does there, do people want lobster thermidor, right? Are they going to like, should I go and buy lobster and come up with a menu, you know, a recipe for it? Well, maybe not. Like maybe you put it there and like, you know, no one's actually going to buy this. Let's not try it. You didn't waste any money. Right. So there are lots of ways you can do this um, and lots of fun um, examples. Uh, One of my favorite examples is uh, Jeff Hawkins, who founded Palm, um, Palm Pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, he went. Bef- he knew he could build a palm pilot. He knew that he had the technology to do it. He just didn't know if it was the right thing to build. So the first thing he did is he made a little mock-up out of wood, a little wooden block that he put a paper sheet over with sort of the mock-up of what it would look like. And he just carried it around with him. And he saw over the course of a few weeks, like, would he use this thing? Because if the form factor was the rate-limiting factor, like, I'm not going to carry this with me, then what's the point of building it? Right. 
right? This is why the Apple Newton died, right? It might it might have had the same functionality, but nobody was going to carry it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there are lots of ways to do these little experiments. So a little motivation, you do a little experiment, you get more motivation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the creativity stage. Then you move to the innovation stage, which requires focus and reframing. Now, focus is the idea is that at this point, you're now basically saying, all right, I am now motivated enough that I'm making this a priority. And I'm going to use that focus to allow me to actually look at things from a very different perspective. And this reframing is essentially the key to coming up with some new way of looking at a problem. Uh, my, my favorite example here is, uh, you know, people usually look, look at the world as, uh, you know, what's the sum of five plus five? Mm-hmm. What's the sum of five plus five? It's, right. it's, it's ten. ten. Right. And there's nailed one it. right answer. Yeah, you nailed <laughs> it. You are good. You are good. Okay. And so, um, but really most problems in the world are not the kind of problem. They are what two numbers add up to 10. Oh, yes. How many answers are there to that? Ooh, well, especially if they don't have to be whole numbers, they could be infinite. That's the point. So there are infinite number of solutions. And so by reframing and looking at that problem from a different perspective, you now unlock an infinite number of solutions. And that framing and reframing is one of the things I am passionate about. Um, If you change one word in the prompt of a question, you can unlock a lot more solutions because the answer is always baked into the question. For example. Please, yes. Okay. When's your birthday? September 20th. Okay, great. Your birthday's coming up. We yeah. can ask all of the listeners to brainstorm about the best birthday party for you. Sound like a good idea? Well, that sounds very convenient. Sure. Okay, good. So we can say, okay, but if we change one word in the prompt, we could say, what's the best way uh, to celebrate your birthday? That's really different than a party, right? There are ways, lots of ways, like we don't have to have a party to celebrate your birthday. Mm-hmm. Right. Or what's the best thing we could do to surprise you on your birthday? Or what's the best present on your birthday? Or what is a birthday ritual we should start? Each of these questions opens the door to a vastly different set of solutions. And that's where the interesting things happen is when you question the questions you're asking. Oh, that's so good. You know, right now in my mind's eye, I don't know, call, maybe, <laughs> I don't know if it's creative or what it is. I'm, I'm imagining, you know, Apple, you know, Joni Ive, just putting it with a beret on for just for good measure. Say, like, how can we craft a birthday experience? <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's like, it really does kind of, you know, move me in different directions. So, so that's very powerful. You know, it I is. would just keep rephrasing and changing a key word or two in how I ask the question, any other, you know, master keys for reframing. Well, it's interesting because I mean, this isn't, that sounds really frivolous. Okay. It's a birthday party, but let's look at something really serious. You know, a company could get started and say, we're going to cure cancer. Right. Well, that sounds like a really great idea, but what if they ask a different question? How do we prevent cancer? How do we save lives of people with cancer? Or exactly. How do we save a lot? Or how do we detect cancer earlier? Or how do we allow people who have cancer to live better lives? I mean, there is a, or how do we reduce the symptoms? Or how do we help people of different age groups? Or, you know, it, the, each of these questions is critical to unlocking of different set of solutions. And so that's where you come up with the really innovative ideas. And then what you have to do is you start generating solutions and you start generating solutions in this, in each of these different solution spaces. And one of my most, my favorite things to do is of course, having people coming up with uh, 
the craziest ideas or the stupidest ideas. And why do you want to do that? Like, why would you want to come up with stupid ideas? Well, guess what? When you want to come up with good ideas, and I can show you this in one second, right? If we said, let's brainstorm about the best family vacation, we're going to take everyone to Hawaii or we're going to go to Disneyland or we're going to, you know, like it's all going to be expected. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if I say, let's come up with the worst family vacation, oh, you're going to say, let's end up stranded on a boat in the middle of the ocean. And you go, that's interesting. What would unlock there? What, what kind of experience would you have? And how might that, maybe that's a really interesting thing or being, you know, being stranded on a desert island or in the middle of a war zone. I mean, you could turn that around and turn it into a really interesting type of experience inspired by that crazy idea. Oh, now, Tina, I'm thinking about how this is just fun for me and I enjoy, you know, imagining those different things and particularly doing it with people. You know, I'd love to get your take on group ideation or brainstorming, you know, amid this context. Is that effective or ineffective or how can we make the most of it? Okay. So I, I spent a lot of time teaching people how to brainstorm. And I, I just think it's really quite fascinating that there are so many people who love to bash on brainstorming. And the reason is brainstorming is like chess. Okay. Um, okay. Do you know how to set up a chess board? Oh, I do. I do. And I can castle too. Okay, good. Yeah. So you know how the pieces move? Right. On yes. a chess board? Do you know how to play? Yes. You so it sounds like okay. And are you a master chess player? Oh no. I mean, I would be slaughtered by a real grandmaster. Okay, and that's the point. Is that it's a skill that you have to learn and practice and master. And you're going to get better, you know, I mean, at some point you didn't know how to play chess or even how to set up the board. The problem with brainstorming is that the rules look really simple, right? Defer judgment you know, lots of ideas, build on ideas. The rules look simple, just like the rules of chess look simple. But actually the strategies to implement them are quite complicated and you have to actually practice them and there's a lot of nuance to really get the best out of the experience. And so um, I, I am a fan of brainstorming and I think that done well by people who are committed to really mastering the art, uh, some really amazing things happen. Okay, so you're saying that it could, well... I guess we had Drew Boyd on the show earlier, if you're familiar with his work and creativity stuff. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, he was sort of down on brainstorming with regard to sharing, you know, some of the studies and sort of individual ideation as opposed to group ideation. And I was just sort of bummed because I love brainstorming. And he seemed to say that studies say you get sort of more or better results with the individual ideation. And so it sounds like you're saying, it's just so ridiculous. Honestly, it's just so ridiculous. I've, I've had this conversation with my, my colleagues who work at IDEO, you know, they're known for their incredible bold thinking and all the innovative products. And the, the point is, if you take a bunch of people, if you just scooped a bunch of people off the street and had them play baseball, they're not going to be able to hit a grand slam. And you don't say baseball doesn't work. I mean, I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? Okay. We don't say chess doesn't chess doesn't work because you take a bunch of kids and put them in front of a chessboard or adults and they don't know how to play. I mean, even if you gave someone the rules, you know, these is there's a very big difference between knowledge and skills. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you're right. Brainstorming doesn't always work, but it often it doesn't always work because people have are like you can't give everyone a violin and tell them to go play a concerto. Okay, 
They have to practice. It takes years of practice to master these skills. And honestly, when you are with people who are also skilled, it's like playing a chess game. They stretch you, right? You're not going to play chess against yourself very well. But someone is on the other side of the table is going to really push you to start thinking in different ways. Like, wow, that was a really interesting move. Where can I go from there? Okay. Well, so Tita, I love this. So it sounds like the fundamental point of variation comes from, you know, you're saying, well, of course, if you just grab random folks together and say, do this, it's not going to turn out so great because it is a masterful skill, which might look easy, you know, on the surface, but there's a whole lot of depth underneath. And so other than just doing a lot of brainstorming, what are your pro tips for, you know, improving our skills within this art? Yeah. So lots of things. I mean, first of all, you have to practice it um, and and really practice stretching the way you think of things. I mean, it's one of the reasons you asked me at the beginning you know, why I do art, do, you know, because it stretches me. I every single day am looking at old things in new ways. I have to pay attention. You know, observation is 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 takes a lot of um focus, right? It takes a lot of time to look at the world and take blinders off. Um, so I think that just like everything else, you, it requires a commitment to practice to get better. And uh, you can do this all the time. I mean, you know, scoop up your friends every day and say, hey, let's brainstorm about that birthday party, or maybe it should be a birthday celebration, or maybe it's a birthday present, or maybe it's, you know, I mean, all the things we were just talking about, it's easy to practice, right? What should we have to dinner? We're going to have a dinner party. Okay, well, maybe it's not a dinner party. Maybe it's a dinner barbecue. Anyway, I don't want to belabor the point. The fact is, this is a wonderful set of skills that can be practiced in every setting, frequently. Okay. Thank you. Set the record straight. Set the record straight. And I'm happy to have a big debate. I mean, there are lots of other things that I, I, you know, I feel strongly about. And this, this is, this is one of them is that, um, people make the mistake of thinking brainstorming doesn't work, uh, because they think the rules are so. All right. Thank you. Well, so now I'd love to get your take when it comes to, you know, coming up with creative thoughts and really having them go somewhere. A lot of times the hang up is, you know, fear, trepidation, self-consciousness, that kind of stuff. What are your perspectives for how we push past that sort of internal emotional resistance in order to really come up with some great stuff? Great. So uh, one of the things that I have my students do is keep failure resumes. These are resumes of all their biggest screw-ups, personal, professional, and academic. And you might go, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but it's actually really fun because what happens is it's a place for you to put all the things that were you stretched and things didn't turn out the way you hoped, and then think about deeply about what you learned from it. And it ends up becoming a very meaningful exercise. Because what happens is you are much less likely to repeat the same mistakes if you actually view them as data. Okay. And so if you go, wow, I did this when I was in a meeting with my department chair and that didn't work out really well. Well, interesting. What am I going to do? Like, let me write it down. Let me write down what I learned. What am I going to do differently next time? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, and, or something else. I mean, it could be anything in your life. Wow. I waited until the last minute to study for that exam and that didn't work out so well. You know, I drank all this coffee in the morning cause I stayed up all night and I was all jittering and I couldn't focus and I failed. Well, okay. What did I learn? 
Okay, I'm not going to do that again. And so um, it, it, it reminds you that when you're doing complicated things for the first time, um, yeah, it's risky, but that's the only way we, we learn. I mean, let me ask you, did, did you walk the first time you tried? Do you have kids? Do you have kids? We don't have kids. Not yet. Okay. But let me tell you something. They probably, when you have them, if you have them, will not walk the first time they try or ride a bicycle. I mean, why do we expect adults to do things that are complicated Mm -hmm. and hard and maybe no one has done before without having some surprises? So having the opportunity to capture that um, really becomes a really powerful exercise. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Well, so I really loved the tip you shared about, you know, reframing and asking the question differently. And that really sparks a whole lot of additional ideas, you know, just about instantly. I'd love it if you have any other kind of favorite tips or prompts or questions that you find really do the trick in a similar fashion to just spark a bunch of extra ideas right away. Sure. Uh, One of my other favorite tools. It has to do with challenging assumptions. And we go through life every single day doing a lot of things that become routine. But if you actually unpack the assumptions around each of these, I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, stopping and getting a, picking up a cup of coffee on the way to work. Like, what are all the assumptions around that? Like, how far do I go to get coffee? How long do I wait in line? What is the assumption of how hot it is or what container it comes in or how I interact with people or the assumptions about what I put in the coffee or how, you know, whatever it is, you, you can pick anything. I mean, the assumptions around breakfast, the assumptions around lunch or dinner or the assumptions around, you know, when you do your homework. And if you turn them upside down and start looking at them from a different perspective, you start unlocking some really interesting other opportunities. So this is a little bit like the bad idea, good idea, but this is about like actually taking the time to unpack mm-hmm. the, your assumptions. And um, it is a powerful tool for starting to see what things you might want to consider doing differently. So you just get really explicit in naming each of the embedded assumptions associated with that question yes, or your defaults. And then you just sort of have some fun. It's like, well, let's just say that's gone. What if that, or what if it was the opposite? So the um, opposite. this exercise, I um, extrapolated from a case study that is um, a, a pretty well-known case study from Harvard, which talks about Cirque du Soleil. Now, Cirque du Soleil, right, is thriving. Well, guess what? When they started in the 80s, the circus industry was dying. I mean, look at Ringling Brothers just went out of business. Okay, that was a very slow Mm -hmm. death. But in the 80s, you could see it coming. And that, like, why would you invest in a new circus? So Cirque du Soleil essentially unpacked all the assumptions around what a circus would be, turned those upside down, and came up with something that was still a circus, right? They didn't change everything, but they said, okay, what if we don't have animals? What if we're not competing with things like baseball games and movies? What if we're competing with the opera or theater? What if the tickets are expensive? What if there's actually a whole storyline for each show? What if there is, right, different types of music or lighting? Or maybe it's not for kids and families. Maybe it's for adults, right? 
And they ended up inventing a brand new circus. Now it's still a circus, right? Mm-hmm. But oh, they yeah. reinvented it. So you can do that with anything, you know, whether it's the car industry or health clubs or marriage. You know, I did an exercise like this. I was in India and asked, you know, what institutions are right for uh, innovation? And, you know, they suggested marriage. And uh, it was fascinating to see all the assumptions that went along with marriage in India and how what would happen if you did it differently. Oh, intriguing. Thank you. Well, tell me, Tina, is there anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? So let me talk for just a minute about the entrepreneurship stage of the um, innovation invention cycle, because the entrepreneurship stage is important because it requires persistence and aspiring other people. Now, persistence is essentially grit, right? It's all the hard work of building your teams and your organizations and your strategy and your marketing and your finances, all that stuff. But inspiration is one of the most important pieces because you need to really think about how do you inspire other people to be as excited about the ideas you are. And my favorite tool here is effective storytelling. And there are some storytelling tools and tips and frameworks that end up becoming incredibly powerful. Uh, My favorite is the story spine. And the story spine is super simple. It goes like this. It'll sound familiar, okay? Once upon a time and every day. Okay, so you've now set the stage for what the world looks like right now, okay? Mm -hmm. Until one day. And that's your intervention. That's your, the thing you're going to do, right? Every once upon a time, you know, Joey got up and every day he, he had a uh, peanut butter sandwich for lunch. Okay. Until one day he tried mixing peanut butter and mustard, you know what I mean? Whatever we pick. Okay. And then the next part of the story is, and because of that, and because of that, and because of that, and because of that, and you can have as many because of that as you want until finally, and ever since then. Right. So you set the stage about the way the world is now, your intervention, all the consequences, and then that the world looks different at the end. Well, that just sounds like that would unleash a whole lot of excitement. Exactly. (laughs) Really fast. (laughs) Well, in fact, this is what you need to do when you're, um, you know, when you're pitching your PhD defense, when you're pitching to an investor, when you're, you know, talking to a potential customer, you're painting a picture of the, the challenge that, that, you or they or someone else is facing, and then you paint a picture of of what the future might look like um, if that's if that was problem was solved. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, okay. So can I quote myself? Oh, take it. Okay, I have a, I have many quotes I, I like, um, but one I'll just quote myself from my book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was Twenty, and the reason I'll quote it is because I get emails from people still daily who quote this quote back to me because it was so meaningful to them. And it is never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. And the idea is that so often in our life, we satisfice, we do just enough to get the job done. But the really successful people, the really the people who really have an impact on the world don't do that. They look at every situation as an opportunity to really knock the ball out of the park and uh, to never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. And the fact that this resonates with so many people is a reminder to me that people are waiting for this instruction. They're waiting to be in a situation where people don't tell them, okay, this is what you need to do to get an A, sort of, you know, that's sort of the, uh, a metaphor for, okay, this is what, this is the minimum amount, Mm -hmm. but are saying, you know what, I'm not going to tell you 
what the minimum is because I expect great things. That's one of them. And the, the second quote that's one of my favorites is that not all things that count can be counted. And not all things that can be counted count. Uh, teaching creativity is a very difficult thing to measure people's creativity. And you have to keep in mind that, um, you know, the fact that it's difficult to measure doesn't mean it's not important. You know, how do you measure love or ethics? Um, creativity is just as important as those. And we need to teach these skills, even though it might be difficult to measure. Um, the, the impact uh, pays back many, many dividends for years and decades to come. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? I'll pick one that was a huge influence on me a long time ago when I just started in this field. It's a book called Conceptual Blockbusting by Jim Adams. And he's sort of my uh, inspirational grandfather. My first job after graduating was working for him. And he was the original person who started this course on creativity and innovation at Stanford. And his book, Conceptual Blockbusting, was one of the earliest books on how do you think creatively and how do you look at things from a brand new perspective. So I think that's a real... Um, classic that people might not have expected, but uh, it's something definitely worth taking a look at. Well, yeah, it's a great title and one I hadn't heard of before. So thank you. Yeah, please take a look. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours? A personal habit. So one of the things I I really, I have so many things I like to do. Um, I've recently started picking up uh, the habit of trying to do some meditation every day. And it really has been very meaningful. You know, we live our lives at such a fast, fast pace. And especially as I get older, I realize that very actively taking the time to do some, have some quiet time and deep reflection uh, has been really, really helpful. Oh, thank you. And if folks want to learn more about you or the book or your work or getting in touch, where would you point them? Super easy. So first of all, you can go to tinaselig.com. So that's just T-I-N-A-S. E-E-L-I-G.com. Um, also, you can follow me on Twitter at TCLig. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would say look around and find the places where, where there's a problem and look at it from a fresh perspective and figure out how you can, you can really make a difference. That reframing of looking at the problems around you as opportunities is one of the hallmarks of being innovative and being entrepreneurial. Okay. Well, Tina, thank you so much for this. I had a whole lot of fun and I'm excited to use some of these tools and I'm glad that you've resurrected brainstorming <laughs> and I could, <laughs> for me and I could feel good about using it with the right collaborative crew. So I wish you tons of luck with the book and your course and, and all your adventures. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. I really dug Tina's insights and I really dig our sponsors. Check them out. Well, I was so delighted to hear Tina bring back the goods for brainstorming, the argument for it. Felt great to hear that. And I feel a little vindicated in the sense of I always loved brainstorming and I assumed it was useful. And it seems like, yes, there's a certain set of conditions. So nice distinctions made there. So thanks to Tina for that as well as, wow, that ability to generate so many more solutions just by changing the way you frame up the problem. A few words can generate just a whole new tranches of ideas. I thought that was awesome. So I hope you did too. And again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we discussed, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep210. And I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll get to hear from our next guest, Jennifer Riel, 
If you are looking at making some choices among all these great ideas you've generated, but the trade-offs seem tricky, well, she's got some great perspectives on how that is done in a systematic kind of a way. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 